This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, it's Super Bowl Sunday. We'll look at how to prevent it from becoming Super Spreader Sunday. Plus, we'll have more of CBS's exclusive interview with President Biden. For the first time in months, COVID-19 numbers are moving in the right direction. Infection and hospitalization rates in the U.S. are all headed down. And the number of Americans vaccinated is going up. Job number one of the American Rescue Plan is vaccines. Vaccines. That American Rescue Plan is President Biden's $2 trillion economic aid package moving through Congress. Once in a century virus has decimated our economy, and it's still wreaking havoc on our economy today. And so much of it is still about the virus. We're still in the teeth of this pandemic. But will that effort slow down due to distractions on Capitol Hill, such as the second impeachment trial of former President Trump revisiting a dark and terrifying day in American history? And if you don't fight like hell, you're not gonna have a country anymore. So go home, we love you. You're very special. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham will join us, along with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. We'll talk with the World Health Organization's COVID-19 lead, Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove. And finally, a look at the NFL's struggles in the pandemic with our own CBS News special correspondent and host of the NFL Today, James Brown. It's all just ahead this Super Bowl Sunday here on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. More than 100 million people are expected to tune in to Super Bowl 55 later today, either on the CBS broadcast or streaming networks. And another COVID record will be set. 
that of the least number of in-stadium spectators for a Super Bowl. Just 25,000 fans will see the game in person, including 7,500 vaccinated healthcare workers. Senior national correspondent Mark Strassman reports from Tampa. Super Bowl 55 in Tampa faces one known threat, COVID-19. The NFL blitzed with adjustments, a stadium one-third full. Cardboard-like cutouts will outnumber people. Mandatory face masks. We had a lot of unknowns ourselves. We had to adapt at every stage just like everybody else. For fans watching anywhere, the CDC urges no chanting or cheering and mask up. It's the Super Bowl, not the stupid bowl. But parties outside the stadium spread worry, or worse, about masks, social distancing, and potential spikes unrelated to a touchdown celebration. Concerns already realized overnight in North Carolina. Now, some good news. COVID America's various benchmarks suggest transmission has dropped to pre-Thanksgiving levels. This week, new cases fell below 1 million nationally, at least a 10% drop in 19 states, more than 25% in 20 others. COVID hospitalizations down more than 20% the past two weeks. Now is not the time to let our guard down. Keep taking steps to protect each other. And vaccinate quickly. Of the nearly 60 million doses delivered, less than two-thirds have actually made it into arms. Starting Thursday, the first of 6,500 retail pharmacies, big players like CVS and Walgreens, will become vaccination centers. The federal government will ship them roughly 1 million doses weekly. Maryland's building this mass vaccination site. But America's frustrated. Demand still dwarfs supply. We can vaccinate everyone in the state. That's why we're building all of this. But we can't do anything without the vaccines. Other vaccination issues, long lines, line jumping, lack of access, lack of equity. And who gets priority? Nearly half of states now say it's teachers, with CDC guidance expected this week on reopening schools. Learning on Zoom has been really hard, especially because I can't always get the help I need. No, 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 no. Stop resisting. Unbridled, unmasked, like this belligerent woman in an Ohio grocery store, a year into the pandemic. Let's get all illegal search! Health officials worry that Super Bowl Sunday could become Super Spreader Sunday. They're encouraging virtual parties and for all fans to watch the game at home only with people they live with. Margaret. Mark, thank you. One Super Bowl tradition that is going on as planned this year, the pregame interview with the president. Our Nora O'Donnell sat down with President Biden on Friday. She talked to him about China and also about the challenges of re-entering the nuclear deal with Iran, which has begun enriching nuclear fuel close to weapons-grade levels. The U.S.-China relationship is probably one of the most important in the entire world. Why haven't you called Xi Jinping? Well, we haven't had occasion to, to talk to one another yet. There's no reason not to call him. I probably spent more time with Xi Jinping, I'm told, than any world leader has because I, I had 24, 25 hours of private meetings with him when I was vice president, traveled 17,000 miles with him. I know him pretty well. There's a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about, a whole lot to talk about. And um, he's very bright, he's very tough. Um, he doesn't have, and I don't mean as a criticism, just a reality, he doesn't have a democratic small d bone in his body. But he is, um, the question is, I've said to him all along, that uh, we need not have a, uh, 
uh, uh, conflict, but there's going to be an extreme competition. And uh, I'm not going to do it the way that he knows this, because he's been sending signals as well, that I'm not going to do it the way Trump did. We're going to focus on international rules of the road. Will the U.S. lift sanctions first in order to get Iran back to the negotiating table? No. They have to stop enriching uranium first. It appears there is a standoff. Overnight, Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, said Iran will not scale back its atomic work until the U.S. removes all sanctions. More of Nora's interview will air in the 4 p.m. hour of Super Bowl pregame coverage right here on CBS. We want to go now to Senator Lindsey Graham in Clemson, South Carolina. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Iran has threatened to kick out U.N. inspectors within the next three weeks if sanctions are not lifted. Uh, you heard the president. Where do you think this stalemate goes from here? Well, the Trump administration put Iran in a box. As a result, you've got four or five Arab nations doing peace agreements with Israel. I think Iran is weaker today than they've been since the regime was started about 40 years ago. So if I were President uh, Biden, I would keep the sanctions on until Iran changed its behavior. I would not want to go into a, an old deal with Iran because uh, they've been up to no good for too long. So he's going to have three problems here. What to do with Iran differently than Trump, what to do with China different than Trump, and how to change Trump immigration policies without creating a run on the border. I would caution President Biden because Trump did it doesn't mean it's wrong. Mm -hmm. So I would slow down if I were President Biden and reevaluate some of these Trump policies and keep them in place if they make sense. You've known the Biden family for years. Have you spoken to the president since inauguration? No, I haven't. Uh, congratulations to, to, to him. He's the legitimate president. I talked to Secretary Blinken two days ago. I'm very pleased with what the Biden administration is proposing for Afghanistan. We're going to keep troops there on a conditions-based uh, uh, approach. Past the May. Afghan study group came out with a good idea. Uh, say again? Past May, which is when the Trump deal would call for uh, conditions-based drawdown? I think, it's, I think it was, yeah, I think we're not going to leave in May. We're going to leave when the conditions are right. The, the Taliban have been cheating. They haven't been complying. And so I like what Tony Blinken and the Biden administration is doing. They're reevaluating our presence in Afghanistan to keep the footprint low, but not to walk away and lose all the gains we've achieved. If we leave too soon without a conditions-based withdrawal, ISIS and al-Qaeda will come roaring back. Women will suffer greatly. So they're in a good spot, I think, on Afghanistan. When it comes to Iran, I would caution the Biden administration to go back into the Iranian deal. There's a proposal by myself and Senator Menendez mm -hmm. that the uh, Iranians can have all the nuclear power they want. They just can't enrich. And I think Arabs would sign up for that deal, which would be a good deal for the world. Well, we'll stay tuned for, for what the policy is. I want to ask you uh, about what's happening here at home with the scheduled trial that is supposed to begin on Tuesday of former President Donald Trump. You voted against holding that trial. But you said this on the morning after the siege of the Capitol. When it comes to accountability, the president needs to understand that his actions were the problem, not the solution. That the rally yesterday was unseemly. It got out of hand. It breaks my heart that my friend, a president of a consequence, would allow yesterday to happen. And it will 
be a major part of his presidency. It was a self-inflicted wound. It was going too far. What changed? Well, it's not a crime. I mean, uh, the House is impeaching him under the theory that his speech created a riot. When you look at the facts, many people had already planned the, to attack the Capitol before he ever spoke. Well, the his trial memorandum the rally, from the, I think was... the trial memorandum from the House impeachment managers actually lays out a pattern of behavior. They say it wasn't just the speech. They say this was cultivated over time. Yeah. Well, here's what I would say, that if you believe he committed a crime, he can be prosecuted like any other citizen. Impeachment is a political process. We've never impeached a president once they're out of office. I think this is a very bad idea. Uh, 45 plus Republicans are going to vote early on that it's unconstitutional. It's not a question of how the trial ends. It's a question of when it ends. Republicans are gonna view this as an unconstitutional exercise. And the only question is, will they call witnesses? How long does the trial take? But the outcome is really not in doubt. That doesn't mean what happened on January the 6th was okay. It means this impeachment in the eyes of most Republicans is an unconstitutional exercise. Right. The president's behavior, in my view, is not a crime, but he can be charged with one if people think he committed it because he's now a private citizen. Well, some Republicans, your colleague Pat Toomey, uh, a Republican, believe that this is constitutional since the president was impeached while he was still in office. But, you know, people can look at this and say, look, when you can't argue a case on its merits, you argue on process. And that's what Republicans are doing right now. Um, because I want to ask you to clarify this. You said on January 7th this about Mike Pence. The things he, were, he was asked to do in the name of loyalty were over the top, unconstitutional, illegal, and would have been wrong for the country. Unconstitutional and illegal sounds a lot like high crimes and misdemeanors. Yeah, well, he wasn't charged with that. So the bottom line is uh, the impeachment articles, I think, uh, are unconstitutional because the president is in Florida. He's not in office. Impeachment for a president requires the chief justice to preside over the trial. He's not at the trial because President Trump is not the president. So this is not process. The Constitution, I think, has been flagrantly violated because when it comes to Trump, there seems to be no end to all of this. So the trial is going to result in an acquittal. Most mm -hmm. Republicans, I don't know what Senator Toomey is going to do, or is going to view this as unconstitutional and the president's behavior is not incitement under the law. And the longer it takes, the worse off for the country, I believe. You said if the president committed a crime, he should be charged. Do you think any of the president's actions, the tweets calling for the rally, the language leading up to the rally, the lying to the public about the ability to overturn the election, what you described he said about Mike Pence, does any of that deserve a reprimand? Well, I mean, he's going to have a place in history for all this, but... The point of the matter is that we're in Congress. We're not prosecutors. Impeachment is never meant to be a right, prosecution. Right, but you have oversight of Justice do Department. Of what do you think? Yeah, 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 I think I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to end the impeachment trial because I think it's blatantly unconstitutional. I'm ready to get on with trying to solve the nation's problems. And as to Donald Trump, he is the most... A uh, popular figure in the Republican Party. He had a consequential presidency. January the 6th was a very bad day for America, and he'll get his share of blame 
in history, but I do believe that in 2022, the Republican Party is going to come roaring back because our friends on the Democratic Party, on the Democratic side, are going to change immigration policy to have caravan after caravan hit our borders. They're so you raise still believe taxes, he is the head of the Republican Party? they us across the board. Excuse me again? I'm sorry. You still believe President Trump is the best face for the Republican Party? Yes or no? I think he's, I think he's the... Yeah, well, I, I think, yeah, I think, I think Donald Trump's policies serve the country well. I think Donald Trump has to rehabilitate yep. himself as a politician. But here's what I think. I think we, most Americans are going to look at the I'm, Biden administration. I'm sorry, we are, and, we are yeah, out sorry. of time. I'm sorry here to okay. cut you off. Thank you for your time this morning. We want to go now to the former Fed chairwoman and new Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen. She joins us in Washington. Good morning to you, Madam Secretary. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. You know, the U.S. is still 10 million jobs short of where we were before this pandemic. Many people have stopped looking for work. Is the jobs market stalling? Well, I'm afraid that uh, the job market is stalling. We saw that in Friday's employment report, just 6,000 private sector jobs created 49,000 overall, and that's after a month in which we actually saw a job loss. So, yeah, we have 10 million people unemployed, 4 million have dropped out at the labor market, and another 2 million are working part-time um, who really would like full-time work. So we have, we're in a deep hole with respect to the job market and a long way to dig out. Specifically, the unemployment rate for men and women um, is relatively similar, but uh, the president's economic advisor, Jared Bernstein, said this past week, the number of women who've left the workforce is of great concern and unusual in a recession. What's driving that, and how do you get women back into the workforce? Well, you know, women really are... Many face just an impossible situation in which they have children they have to take care of who aren't in school and um, would be facing increasing demands on the job. And many, over two million, have dropped out of the labor force because um, it's so hard to manage that con that conflict. And. The, the package, the American Rescue Package that President Biden has proposed um, really addresses the problems that women face. It places huge emphasis on getting our schools open safely, getting children um, back into school, um, providing paid family and medical leave during uh, this crisis so that women um, don't have to leave their jobs when they're faced with health issues or family issues that they have to address. There's emphasis on providing more child care and, um, and payments, tax credits uh, expanded for children to help families address these needs. And I think this is really necessary um, to get women back to work. They've faced uh, a disproportionate 
burden because of this crisis, especially low-wage women and women of color. Those emergency paid leave provisions would expire in September. During your confirmation hearings, you talked about the U.S. needing to make these more permanent, essentially, to stay competitive with the rest of the developed world. Is getting the U.S. to adopt a legal mandate for expanded paid leave and child care your ultimate goal? Well, it's certainly something that President Biden is interested in. And, you know, the current package that he's proposed, the American Rescue Package, is intended to deal with the immediate crisis, the economic crisis and the health care crisis. But beyond that, he looks forward to proposing um, ideas to, to address longstanding challenges that our economy is faced. That sounds like a, a yes in the future. Let's talk about now. Um, in this current yes. rescue package, uh, who, what should determine who is eligible for a stimulus check? Should it be your, your 2019 income level or your unemployment status? Um, well, you know, President Biden wants to make sure that um, the, the payments that he's proposed, $1,400 payments to um, make good on the total $2,000 pledge, goes to families that really need it, that are struggling. And, um, of course, it shouldn't go to um, very well-off families families that don't need the funds and haven't been hard hit by the crisis. So he's um, discussing the appropriate cutoffs and phase-ins with members of Congress and um, is open to um, negotiating on those. But um, there are a lot of families that are struggling um, with lower income and need, need those payments. You know, sending people checks in the mail, though, the criticism is that this is more about politics than economics. Some of your fellow economists have been very critical. Uh, Stanford's John Kogan claims 70 percent of stimulus payments from last year were either saved or used to pay debt. Mark Zandi of Moody's, who the president often references, uh, said stimulus checks are not the most effective type of support and said much of it goes to households that don't need the funds. Given that, how do you justify writing these checks? Well, uh, it has to go to people and households that do need the money, and those are lower-income households. And um, we need to um, make sure that the cutoffs um, are appropriate so that households that are doing really well um, maybe have seen their stock portfolios rise and make a lot of income and haven't lost their jobs, those households shouldn't be getting it. What's there your floor and ceiling on that? There is a lot more that? targeted relief also. Well, I, I don't have specifics for you today. These are matters that President Biden is discussing with members of Congress and um, is open to um, reviewing what's what's appropriate. But he is committed to um, providing the $1,400 uh, payments to those who qualify. Well, there's no jobs creation program in here. The president says he wants that massive infrastructure bill to be next. And, and job creation is what we need to see. Are, don't you risk spending your political capital now when you need to create jobs in this next bill? Well, there will be another bill that addresses job creation through infrastructure development, through investment in people, in education and training, um, addresses climate change, um, improves the competitiveness of our economy, and is designed to create 
good jobs with good pay um, that involve uh, careers for people. But right now, this package will do a huge amount to create jobs. Um, the spending it will generate um, is going to lead to demand for workers, help put people back to work, especially when we can um, get vaccinations and the public health situation uh, to the point where uh, the economy can begin to open up again. Before I let you go, there's been some uh, wild swings in the price of GameStop. Uh, are markets functioning properly? We really need to look in detail to understand what happened in those um, in those stocks um, over the last couple of weeks. I would say that the core infrastructure of the markets, the plumbing, um, ability to trade, um, clearance, settlement, um, those infrastructures performed well. But we need to make sure that investors are adequately protected, that they understand the risks, and that we have fair and efficient markets. And we'll be looking into all of that. Madam Secretary, thank you for your time. Coming up in our next half hour, a Super Bowl preview with our own James Brown. And we'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. So stay with us. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Vaccine efforts around the world are also picking up speed. Senior foreign correspondent Liz Palmer reports from London. Good morning. There was a good news milestone this week. The number of vaccinations given worldwide was greater for the first time than the number of new recorded COVID cases. That's partly due to aggressive public health action. Like here in Brazil, teams pushed into the Amazon to vaccinate people in remote villages who wouldn't have a hope of getting to an ICU. And the very first vaccine shipment arrived in South Africa this week. Such a big deal that officials, including the president, came out to welcome it in the pouring rain. But wherever there is vaccine in both the developing and the developed world, there are plenty of takers. From Morocco to Sweden, where the majestic hall normally used to award the Nobel Peace Prize was being repurposed as a vaccination center. 
In spite of the progress, though, this pandemic is more lethal now than it was last spring. Twice as many people are dying daily than in mid-April 2020. With terrifying local surges, the worst of them at the moment in Portugal. It's got the highest death rate anywhere in the world. And it had to welcome German doctors and equipment to help. COVID has reminded millions that life is fleeting and precious. Take Rosario, hospitalized with COVID in Madrid. She was wheeled to see Fernando, her partner of 14 years. He'd finally proposed to her by text from his bed, and she joyfully replied. It's also worth noting, Margaret, that in this push to vaccinate, there are some deliberate holdouts, notably New Zealand and Australia. They closed their borders early on. They have virtually no COVID cases. And so for now, they've decided just to watch and wait. Liz Palmer in London. Thank you. We want to go now to the World Health Organization's COVID-19 lead. That's Dr. Maria Van Kerkhoff. She joins us from Geneva, Switzerland. Good to have you with us, doctor. Hi, Margaret. Thanks for having me. You're an epidemiologist. You specialize in zoonotics, which means you know a lot about how these viruses jump between species like COVID did. These new variants, you've described them as a combination of mutations all at the same time. What does that mean? Well, these viruses change all the time, and, and every time they replicate, the more they spread, the more changes that they can have. These are called mutations. These are individual changes in the genome itself. These variants um, have had a combination of mutations, which mean a number of mutations identified at the same time. Um, and so that means that this clustering of these, of these uh, mutations happening at the same time are quite different than individual level mutations. And we've had three such variants being reported, actually four such variants being reported in the last few months. The first in Denmark, the second reported from the United Kingdom, the third from the South Africa, and the fourth from Brazil. So which countries have actually been successful in, in containing the virus? And is there a common uh, approach to their success? Well, that's a great question. There's, there is a common approach that many countries have taken to control the SARS-CoV-2 virus, including these virus variants that have been detected. And it's a combination of factors. It's, in, it's individual levels that we've, individual level measures that we've seen people take, you and I, in terms of our physical distancing, our mask wearing, our avoiding of crowded spaces, our opening of windows, our sneezing into our elbow, all of those measures are really critical, as well as government-led uh, responses where we have all of government, all of society approach, where we're conducting active case finding, where we know where the virus is. We can support people who are infected through good clinical care. We make sure that those individuals are isolated. Any contacts of confirmed cases are provided supported quarantine so that if they are infected themselves, there is no opportunity for them to pass the virus to others. Making sure that we open up our workplaces safely, our schools safely, it's a combination of factors. And many countries have done well in, in having an aggressive approach to making sure that they have the testing, the tracing, the clinical care, and really strong, empowered, enabled, and engaged communities. It's all of this. You hear us say a lot, do it all. This is what we mean by when we say do it all. When you're talking about things like enforcing quarantine, it sounds like you're talking about Australia, New Zealand. Are those the best examples? 
we have great examples all over the world of how countries have used a, these, these combinations of factors. When I use the word quarantine, I'm using this in the sense of contacts of confirmed cases. So when you have a case that is infected, that individual who's infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus needs to be provided with good clinical care, and they need to be isolated from others so that they don't have the opportunity to pass it to someone else. Mm -hmm. But before they go into isolation, they may have many contacts. And those contacts of individuals who of cases need to be provided supported quarantine, which means they're separated from others and provided food and care and safety and security um, for 14 days while they wait um, and make sure that they're not infected themselves, they get a test themselves, but they don't have the opportunity to pass to others. South, uh, South Africa is, is a good example um, where they got through their first peak. Um, countries across Asia and the Pacific, including Australia and New Zealand. But in fact, we've actually seen really strong responses across Europe during their first peak, where mm -hmm. over the summer months in Europe, uh, cases were down to single digits. And they showed us, and many countries across Africa, across Europe, across the Americas, have shown that they can drive transmission down. And this is really, really critical now that we have these virus variants being detected, because the more opportunities this virus has to spread, the right. more opportunities it has to change. So we need to make sure we prevent as many infections as we can. Which part of the world is going to be most complicated to vaccinate? Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, we need to vaccinate uh, people at risk all over the world. So I think there are different complicating factors in, in different parts of the world for different reasons. But what we want to make sure that we do is, number one, that we have multiple safe and effective vaccines that are in production that continue to be tested, continue to be studied, to continue to come online. Are you that concerned by this production AstraZeneca all report? over the world? Say that again? Are you, Say that again? Are you concerned by this reporting that AstraZeneca's vaccine may not be effective against the South African variant, B1351. Yes, so the B1351 um, variant identified, first identified in South Africa, there's a number of studies that are underway to look at um, the response of the body, the immune response of the body, but also the impact of vaccination. Um, there are some preliminary studies suggesting reduced efficacy, but again, those studies aren't fully published yet, and our group, um, our, our independent panel group um, on vaccinations is meeting tomorrow to specifically discuss the AstraZeneca vaccine, as well as the results coming out of South Africa, to determine what does this mean in terms of the vaccines going forward. But this is why it's really, really critical that we have more than one safe and effective vaccine. We cannot rely on only one product, and that is not the goal of, of anyone around the world. So that is definitely something we need to continue to push forward. But again, vaccines are not just enough. It's vaccination that's really critical. We need to make sure everyone who is at risk, um, you know, the elderly, people who are at most at risk for severe disease, receive the vaccine mm -hmm. in all countries around the world, as well as health workers all around the world as opposed to everybody in just a handful of countries. Uh, World Health Organization investigators, a year after the outbreak began in China, have now been allowed in to look at what happened on the ground. Is this just a show by the Chinese government? 
No, it's not. Um, in fact, we have a team of 10 international scientists. Uh, you call them investigators, but indeed they're, they're scientists from a number of different technical fields, as well as people from WHO, my colleagues. Um, and we have colleagues from FAO and OIE who are supporting the mission as well. And this is these are studies that are ongoing to find the virus origins and understand the intermediate hosts. You know, what were the zoonotic origins of this pandemic? And this is really, really critical from a public health perspective so that we know and we can take steps further to prevent this from happening again. Um, they're very good discussions that are having on the ground. There are constructive exchanges between this international team from 10 different countries, as well as the Chinese counterparts, looking at the earliest cases, looking at studies from the markets. Um, they've had visits to hospitals. They've had visits to, to um, laboratories, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology, mm -hmm. as well as visiting different levels of the Chinese Centers for Disease Control. So we're hoping for the report um, as soon as possible, and that will be made available um, as soon as it can. All right. Doctor, thank you for your time this morning. Good luck to you. We want to go now to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He sits on the board of Pfizer as well as Illumina, and he joins us this morning from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, you just heard from Dr. Van Kirkhoff, and, and she outlined all the mutations here. What is the bottom line um, from what she was laying out? I mean, she did seem to indicate there are concerns about this AstraZeneca vaccine and its efficacy against B1351 out of South Africa. Well, I think as a rule of thumb, we can assume that the vaccines are probably going to be about 20% less effective against these new variants from Brazil and South Africa, which has mutated some key regions of the protein that we target with our vaccines. We've seen that now in a Novavax trial and the J&J trial, as well as with the AstraZeneca vaccine. The mRNA vaccines, and I'm on the board of Pfizer, which developed one of those, are very efficacious. And so even if we see a reduction in the efficacy of those vaccines, and it may not be as profound with those vaccines, you're still getting very good protection with those vaccines. And frankly, you're getting very good protection with the J&J &J vaccine as well. So I do think that the existing vaccines are gonna offer reasonable protection against these new variants. And we also may be able to develop in a timely fashion, maybe in four or six months, a consensus strain that bakes in a lot of the different variation that we're seeing to have boosters available for the fall. So I think that there is a reasonable chance that we're going to be able to stay ahead of this virus as it mutates. Um, Trevor Bedford at the Hutch has done some good work on this, and some people are speculating right now that this virus may have undergone a really significant evolutionary leap, if you will. It's mutated a lot all at once in different parts of the world, but it's not going to continue to mutate at the same rate. Um, it may have reached a new fitness level, but, but it's going to slow down. It's not going to continue to change as much. So we're going to be able to keep up with it. I asked uh, the doctor about the uh, probe underway in China. From your view, how important is it to know the origins of the first strain that, that we learned of with COVID-19 in China? Well, look, I think it's important from a political standpoint, and I think it's important from a public health standpoint, so we know what the risk is for future um, transmission, for future jumps from zoonotic sources into, into the human population, and we kind of better understand the risk from coronaviruses more generally. I don't think we're going to find out, um, and we're certainly not going to be able to find out with any level um, of certainty that's going to put to rest some of the speculation that this could have been a lab source. Now, most people believe that this was a zoonotic source, um, you know as well as I do, there's still speculation, um, even in the government, 
that it could have been from um, an accident in the laboratory. We know that that Wuhan laboratory was doing a lot of experimentation, had a big repository of coronaviruses. I don't expect that the WHO mission is going to firmly put that to rest. We would need access to the source strains. I suspect they're not going to get that. Um, that information, if it's available, the Chinese government would have that. And so far, they have not made that available. Uh, you told us on this program last Sunday that it was Miami and Southern California that you were most concerned about as hotspots for this B117 strain detected in the UK. Are there are those still the areas of greatest concern for you? Yeah, and Florida is growing um, pretty significantly. Right now, between 5 and 10 percent of the infections in Florida are B117, that UK variant, the more contagious variant. And that's centered in Southern Florida. I think that what's going to happen in Florida right now, they're continuing to show declines in new infections like the rest of the country. I think as the rest of the country continues to come down that curve, you're going to see a leveling off in Florida. And while I don't think that they're going to have another surge of infection, they could have persistent high infection because B117 is gaining a better, a better foothold in that part of the country. Southern California is probably right now about 5% of infections are B117, so they're a little further behind Florida. For the rest of the country, it's probably less than 1% all around the country. Now, there could be localized hotspots, particular mm -hmm. counties where you have an outbreak of B117, but I think for the most part around the country, um, it's probably too little too late. We'll probably be able to get ahead of it with our vaccines and the seasonal effect from the warming weather. Getting ahead of it's a good thing. Uh, the CDC is expected to release guidelines this week on how to safely reopen schools. Um, the CDC director said vaccination of teachers is not a prerequisite. What should be a prerequisite? Well, I think the prerequisite is putting in place mitigation steps in the schools, the school districts that have reopened successfully. And there was good data out of North Carolina where they did some systematic research looking at the experience in those schools which were open, showed that when they wear masks, when they distance, when they try to take precautions in the classroom, there's very little transmission within the classroom. The schools are not a vector of transmission, and especially children under the age of 14 are less likely to both get infected and transmit the infection. I think it certainly um, would be good to be able to prioritize teachers to get them vaccinated so they're not at risk from contracting the infection and spreading the infection. But I don't think it's necessarily a prerequisite. I think schools have demonstrated that they can open safely if they take precautions in the classroom. When it comes to getting vaccines out there, we know retail pharmacies will begin receiving shipments this week. The Biden administration sticking with that Trump plan of giving doses based on population. Is this the best way to get doses into the arms of the public? I think for now, um, you know, they've made a lot of progress. We've hit some days where there's two million vaccines that have been delivered. I think we're going to see that more consistently. That's going to be the run rate. Um, as we get into March, by the end of March, we'll have delivered 250 million vaccines onto the market if the J&J &J vaccine gets authorized. And in April, we'll probably deliver another 100 million vaccines onto the market. If you assume a 60-40 split between first doses and second doses, you assume about 60% of the supply that's coming onto the market is going to first mm -hmm. doses. By the end of March, we'll have delivered 150 million vaccines and in April, another 60 million. We're going to run out of demand. I mean, I think we need to start thinking about the demand side of this equation soon. Okay. Dr. Gottlieb, good to talk to you as always. And we'll be back with a preview of Super Bowl 55. Stay with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one. 
In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Hello and welcome to the Super Bowl. Four hours of television for 11 minutes of action. I am James, no, not that one, Brown. As everyone at home knows, this year has been anything but normal. The pandemic, racial and political divisions, army hammer. <laughs> but today we come together in a spirit of unity to watch football and murder billions of chickens for their delicious wings. That of course was not CBS, but last night, Saturday Night Live. And we want to go now to the real James Brown. JB is CBS News special correspondent and host of the NFL Today. But really, JB, you don't need any introduction here. How are you doing? Margaret, I didn't see the beginning of SNL. My text messages started blowing up as I'm trying to go to bed last night. But that's an appropriate opening, to say the least. So I'm looking forward to it. And thank you for giving me a little bit of levity to start. <laughs> well, congratulations. This is your 10th Super Bowl, I understand. But I mean, you, I have no doubt, have never seen anything quite like pulling this off in the midst of a pandemic. What is going to be different this year? Well, the fact that we won't have a packed house, uh, that adds immeasurably to any uh, big event, the pop and circumstance of it and the excitement of the fans. We won't have that, but the players will be thrilled to have at least the 22 to 25,000 who will be there. That really does influence them significantly. Obviously, a lot of the pomp and circumstance surrounding the Super Bowl, uh, the parties, the celebrations, and all those things have been non-existent. Uh, so it's a little different that way, but we're glad to get to this point. Heavens, who would have thunk it that we would have gone through 17 weeks of the regular season, getting 256 games in, and now we're at the Super Bowl, but that's a real tribute to the players, the teams, and the coaches who have, who have adhered to the COVID protocols by and large throughout the season, Margaret. Well, it's significant that there even is a Super Bowl, uh, but I'm wondering, JB, what are you hearing about what comes next for the league? Are we going to see athletes get vaccinated or be part of sort of a public relations push to encourage Americans to go get that shot in the arm? Excellent question. A number of players are doing that at present, and I'm certain given that you're involved in news full time, you know that there's been a bit of a challenge in communities of color to embrace the vaccination. So you see a number of the athletes, especially those of color, who are doing PSAs to encourage people. You know, personally, it's I say it's a personal decision. Do your homework and examine it to see what makes sense for you. But there is a push. I would think we'll see a lot more of that. However, um, the other elephant in the room is I've been told by league officials that they will not 
advocate for having a priority position in terms of being vaccinated, because as you well know, with the sobering news surrounding this, there are far more people who are in need of that as opposed to athletes trying to move to the front of the line. Mm -hmm. We spoke to uh, the head of the Players Association about that question the other day, uh, Demora Smith, and he shared with us something else that I want to get your reaction to. And that is frustration, frankly, among many players uh, with the lack of diversity among coaching staff in particular. And he said, unfortunately, we've had some former coaches of color who I think have given excuses or cover for the league in this. So there's some sharp words. What do you make of that assessment? Well, you know, today on our pregame show, I'm going to address that very issue with a commentary of my own coming off of an excellent but sobering piece that's entitled Before Jackie, meaning before Jackie Robinson, um, and that will be in the 4 o'clock hour of our pregame show. And it addresses, sadly, part of the history was there were a number of owners back in 1933 who collaborated and consciously, deliberately made a decision to eliminate black players from the league. And it was 13 years later before when the team moved to California, Los Angeles specifically, playing in a stadium that was in a minority community, meaning they paid taxpayer dollars and they said they weren't going to allow it. And that's when uh, Kenny Washington broke the color barrier. So the fact is, sadly, there is a history that I know definitively that Roger Goodell, the commissioner, Troy Vincent, the highest ranking African-American, have done everything possible to create an environment and a culture to that. And the bottom line is equality of opportunity is all that is sought male and female, there's no division. I'm so happy to see full-time female assistants on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers that you'll get a chance to see. And bottom line, there's a McKinsey report that came out in May 2020 that said diversity wins, inclusion matters. We have a wonderful mosaic here in America of people of all hues and stripes, and excellence comes in all hues and stripes. So why not take advantage of that to improve the bottom line and the culture and winning with that attitude? You know, you know, football and activism really became uh, a hot topic in the past few years. Where does that conversation go next? Is it coaches or is it in another direction? Coaches, quite frankly, are low-hanging fruit. Look, when the league was open up to diversity, uh, it's not surprising that half the number of players who are in the Hall of Fame are players of color. Uh, black players specifically. Uh, the same thing I'm going to be talking with Amy Trask, who is, has been and still is, sadly, the only female CEO of a team. It's going to continue to move forward because I think people see that and embrace it, and it only makes sense. JB, it's always good to get your reflections. Good luck to you today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, by the way, Margaret, Keenan Allen, uh, Keenan uh, on uh, SNL, he had a better hairline than me, and his <laughs> mini afro looked a lot better than my micro afro, but thank you for having me on anyway. Uh, I like the real JB. And there's more from the head of the NFL Players Union, Demora Smith, on our latest podcast. We hope you'll listen and enjoy today's game safely. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, World Health Organization COVID-19 lead, Dr. Maria Van Kirkhope, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and CBS News special correspondent and host of the NFL Today, James Brown. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. 
For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also broadcast on our digital network, CBSN. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.